So tonight we're going to be in Joshua chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, you can um, open up to Joshua chapter 5. As we're going verse by verse through the book of Joshua. Last week we saw that they came through the Jordan River. God parted the Jordan River as they entered into the Promised Land, even as 40 years before he parted the Red Sea when they came out of the land of bondage, Egypt. One generation came out 40 years before. A new generation is going in 40 years later. And so they've crossed the Jordan River. They've been looking at Jericho. They're now no longer in modern Jordan, but they're now in modern Israel. They've crossed the Jordan River. God has made a way miraculously. They gathered the 12 stones and made a heap in the bottom of the river as a memorial to the Lord, kind of a private memorial underwater, and also 12 stones on the side of the river as a public memorial for future generations to know that the God, the God of Israel, was with them and had brought them into the promised land, and he's their God, and they're in a covenant with him. They are the people of covenant, much like the church tonight through faith in Jesus. We're the people of covenant. Theirs was the shadow of things to come. Ours is the substance of full things in Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, we pick it up in chapter 5, where we read this as the nations there on the cusp of, of war and, and, and entering into what God has prepared before them. We read this in verse 1 of chapter 5. So it was when all the king of the Amorites, the, the Canaanites on the east side of the Jordan River, who were, uh, excuse me, on the west side of the Jordan River of the Jordan, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Here in verse 1, we see what God had promised back in the book of Deuteronomy, that he would go before his people, that he would create fear from their enemies toward them, that he would magnify them, Israel, his people of covenant, in the eyes of the enemies, in essence, really win the psychological war before combat even began. And we are reminded time and time again that the battle belongs to the Lord. Like we are saying earlier, we're going to see a victory for the battle belongs to the Lord. Isn't it wonderful to sing a song like that in conjunction to a text like this? Because it's not about Israel and what they could do. It was about who God is in the covenant with them and what he promised to do for them. They fought literal war and combat war. We don't fight those same kind of wars. Ours are spiritual battle, but we're promised victory as we go forward in, in Christ and we're in his will we're unstoppable in his will, and the battle truly is the Lord's. And so here, God gave the psychological advantage for Israel against their enemies. Remember what Rahab had said to the two spies a couple weeks ago, where she said, we heard of all that God did for you coming out of Egypt, how you defeated Sihon and Og there uh, on the other side of the river, and they were already in terror. Jericho was locked up. They were in terror. And it's sad, but it says that the wicked flee when no one chases them. And if you've ever hung out with criminals, please don't. But if you had, or druggies, please don't. But if you had, you'll know you always feel like someone's after you or someone coming to get you. And, and that's what happens. Like when you're not right with God, you, you're afraid of retribution from God, and you should be. But when you're right with God, you don't have that fear. You have the fear of the Lord, and God is going before you. So Jericho, actually, because God described how they lived their lives, who they were, what they did, they had no sexual boundaries. They did whatever they wanted to with people and animals sexually. They, they killed, took innocent life all the time. They were wicked. They were incredibly wicked. And God even said they were past any point of redemption. They could not be saved. They'd crossed that line. They were so far lost and demented in their depraved minds and darkened hearts. There was no redemption for them 
other than Rahab, who is the great exception in her family, who chose to put their faith in the God of Israel, which we saw back in chapter 2, where she had that confession. So Israel is crossed over, and the terror of the Lord is with Israel upon the inhabitants of Jericho. They're already defeated psychologically. Verse 2, chapter 5, verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of the war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they'd come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness to all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord swore that he would show, to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons, with whom he had raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. This is part one of their preparation. They're a people of covenant. Now, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham being their father, so you have the Abrahamic covenant for 400 years, from the son of promise, Isaac would come a nation, that nation is Israel. The sign of that covenant was circumcision of the males on the eighth day after they're born. Then later on at Mount Sinai, you know, they made the agreement to keep the law. They made the covenant with God. God had the Passover where the blood on the door and they were, the blood of the innocent was shed, the the blood of the Passover lamb over the door and all that. And then they came out the next morning. So the first sign of the covenant for the Israelites being descendants of Abraham for the men was circumcision on the eighth day. The second sign of the covenant was Passover once a year as identity in their covenant with God. Much like for the church, water baptism is a sign of the covenant. When we give our life to Christ, we ideally are water baptized, whether we're sprinkled or immersed. Immersion seems to apply more what the Bible says because we go in the grave with Christ, we're raised with Christ. But in some cases, you just can't do that for various reasons. And then blood being the sign of the covenant with Passover, they had the Passover lamb pointing toward Christ, But for us, we have the cup with Jesus, and he instituted communion on the Passover feast. Take this cup, the cup of my blood shed for you. This is my body broken for you. And so we are yoked to this covenant, these covenant signs with Israel in that sense. But we also know in the New Testament, they tried to make the men who gave their lives to Christ go back and be circumcised, the Gentiles who weren't, and say, you're not really saved unless you're circumcised. So they missed the whole point that it wasn't outward flesh or the cutting away of flesh, but it was being born again of the heart by the Spirit of God. But for these people, at their time in their covenant, the shadow of things to come is Christ, like black and white TV. Theirs was circumcision. And you ask yourself, how do the children of promise go 40 years years in the wilderness and not be circumcised? I mean, it's like the most basic sign of the covenant for them at that time. They were on the move, and you can Google it and research it. There's really no great explanation other than what the text itself says, that their parents had rejected the Lord, been rejected by the Lord, and died in their sins and unbelief. And so one is inclined to think that as the parents just refused to serve the Lord, refused to live by faith, refused to enter to the promises, they refused to circumcise their children. It's like they refused to 
let their children identify with the potential promises that God had for them in their generation in a way they want it. They just let their children go down with them as they're going down. In other words, if they're not going to enter in, they're not going to identify their children with the promise who are going to enter in. And there you even see that implied in the text, the, the disobedience rebellion of the previous generation. So when we think about the effects of one unbelieving generation on the generation coming after them that would have opportunity, it's important that we do draw that distinction that God gives each one of us. The failures of our parents and future generations does not have to be the failures for us and our current generations. And that's really a word for the younger people here tonight. The failures of the previous generation that might come your way is not something that have to be our failures. Just because our parents wouldn't circumcise us, in other words, just because our parents wouldn't raise us in the things of the Lord, just because our parents didn't give us moral absolute right and wrongs, just because our parents were unfaithful to their spouses and our parents were divorced or whatever, just because of these sorts of things, that doesn't mean we have to be that thing. There comes a point, if we're going to enter into the promised land, if we're going to get to the land flowing with milk and honey, we have, to, we have to be circumcised. We have to make our stand of faith. We have to make our identity with the promises of the covenant that God has for us. Like I said, when I told my mom I was going to get water baptized years ago, she was very offended in her Catholic background. And she said, you were baptized. I had you baptized. And my mom and I used to really go at this early on, too. You know, like, early on, you get older, you get wiser, right? You know, like, mom, it's all good. You know, like, Jesus is the son of God. Let's focus on that. But at that time, I'm like, what? And, uh, but I, I said to her, you meant well in having me infant baptized. That was a good thing. You were trying to identify me in Christian faith. And I, I appreciate that. So thank you. But I have to make my own decision for my faith. Like, I need to be water baptized to identify with Christ for me. What you did, you did for me, and I'm thankful for it, but what Jennifer and I are going to do at Oceanside Harbor, we're doing for us. And I'll never forget the day Jennifer and I were baptized at Oceanside Harbor by Brian Broderson. My wife and I were baptized together, and it was a beautiful day. I got pictures of it. It was glorious. So just because your parents were circumcised and didn't walk with the Lord and were rejected by the Lord doesn't mean, and they didn't have you circumcised, doesn't mean that you, you shouldn't get circumcised and make your own promises. And obviously the context, I'm not talking about literal physical circumcision. I'm talking about the steps of faith and the steps of obedience that God has for us. We all have to find our own faith with Christ and all the good things that someone can do before us or all the bad things someone can do before us to stumble us have to be removed because in the end, if we're going to enter the promises and receive our inheritance on that side of the Jordan River, we have to step up and do the next thing that's right with the Lord. And that we've been talking about in the book of Joshua is doing the next thing. And the next thing for them is before you fight any meaningful battles, you've got to identify the covenant properly. In their case... The whole army, a million people, 600,000 young men able to go to war, plus their wives and their children, except for the two and a half tribes on the other side of the Jordan River, they crossed miraculously. They're a million people. And if you've ever been to Israel, you can picture this, and I have been once a long time ago. They're over there in that valley, and there's the next challenge is the battle against Jericho with its massive walls and unpenetrable and before anything else happens is they need to be properly identified in steps of obedience for themselves for them to enter into the promises God has for them. 
Just like when Moses was going to go deliver the Israelites in, in Exodus, on the way the Lord withstood him to his face and he had to circumcise his own children. How are you, Moses, going to deliver Israel, the people of covenant, when your own children aren't circumcised? That that evidence of faith being passed on in your own family, if you can't lead your family, how can you lead the flock of God? That's what it says in the pastoral epistle. So this is that context that we get here that's broader. And so they circumcised them all. They all came across, and there on that hill, they were the men were circumcised. Evidently, it's extremely painful for a day or two, but we understand from the medical field, and they were there. And we read, in the, as this unfolded in verse 7, as the sons were circumcised, the sons were raised up in the place of their failed parents. The sons were raised up in the place of their failed parents. Again, some of you have great parents that just great things from the Lord for you. Some of you not good at all. And some of you average. But in the end, there comes a time that we must do it. And with adult children, you learn this. You older people understand this. You younger people, maybe not as much. But no matter how much you want your children to walk with the Lord, and as much as you set them up to walk with the Lord, they, they have to figure it out. They have got to, they've got to do it on their own. They've got to figure it out. You cannot go knock on your adult children's door, or you can, and you can try. It usually doesn't work. You just can't make them do things because God gives us choice. And if people want to choose to destroy their life, they can. And if people want to choose to make good decisions, they can. It's something you learn as a parent when your kids are all grown up that you just have to, you got to give them to the Lord, just like you did when they were born and they're dedicated or water baptized or whatever. You got it. You just got to give them to the Lord and keep giving them to the Lord. And you hope that there'll be a day when they stand on that hill and they take the steps that they need to take of obedience and covenant to enter into the land flowing with milk and honey and not settle for anything less than what God has for them. And that's what happened here. They're taking away the reproach. There was a reproach that was upon them because they weren't circumcised and now the reproach is removed. You can't go to war. You can't serve the Lord as people of covenant if you're not properly identified with your own steps of faith and obedience in that covenant. And that's what happened here. Verse 10, we read on. Now, the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land of that day in the, after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Cana, Canaan that year. This is a very interesting verse. You can miss this too. couple thoughts here. Now they've been circumcised. That's a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Now they're keeping Passover. So in God's economy and timing, remember 40 years, they came out of Egypt on Passover. And now they're coming into the promised land 40 years later on Passover. It's God's timing. And Passover, again, is the identity of being under the blood, walking in unleavened bread, in obedience to the Lord. So they've got the circumcision has happened. That goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. Now they've got the Passover. That's the Mosaic covenant from Sinai coming out of Egypt 40 years later. Part one of making things right. Part two of making things right. Part one, circumcision. Part two, keeping the Passover. For the next 900 years, when Israel 
does good things and makes good decisions to get right with the Lord, from the book of Judges all the way to the return from the captivity, things go much better when the children are circumcised, the male children on the eighth day, and they keep the Passover on the right day of every year they're at. And we know from the revivals under Hezekiah and Josiah where they have Passover that some people mock it and laugh at it like people who go to church in America laugh at us for believing Jesus is the only way though they go to church in America and they attack us. We still keep the Passover. Jesus is still our Passover. There aren't many ways. There's one way. The blood of the lamb, the Passover. And even in Israel, in the great revivals, when they're a nation about to go off a cliff, before the Babylonians came and conquered them and took them away, there's still a few tribes and a remnant of people that knew what the right thing to do was. And when Josiah said, come keep the Passover, they did with their children. That's who we are. That's the legacy of faith we receive from the Old Testament, from the apostles for us in the New Testament, to this church this day and who we are. They made it right. They did the next thing. They did the circumcision, make that right in their personal life. They kept the Passover collectively, make that right for them. And then we read that they had no more manna. This, of course, is the end of the miraculous food that God provided for them in the wilderness. How special was the manna? Man, the manna was so special. Food from heaven. In human history, there was a miracle every day for 40 years. Every day, that food from heaven miraculously appeared on the ground in one of the hottest, most God-forsaken places on planet Earth to feed God's people. We're told it's the food of angels. It's a heavenly food. And these children who are now full-grown adults, they ate that manna from the time they were teenagers coming out of Exodus, out of Egypt, or born in the wilderness, they ate that manna every day. That's all they knew was the heavenly food, the manna. That's all they knew. And then here, at this time, their diet shifts from the heavenly food to earthly food as they enter into the land flowing with milk and honey. What a dramatic, radical change. Because no other generation ever ate the man in the wilderness. And even when Jesus came 1,500 years later and he feeds them miraculous bread, miraculously, and he says, you don't seek me because of my word. You seek me because I fed you. And they said, oh, our fathers ate uh, man in the wilderness. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Jesus is, of course, superior to the manna, and the manna represented Christ as we... As Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Jesus is the bread of life. He is our our life, the life of our soul. And the life of our soul is far more important than the life of our body because the outward man's perishing, the outward woman's perishing, but the inward woman, the inward man's being renewed daily through faith in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit being transformed from glory to glory. The end of manna, contextually, is the end of something supernatural for 40, almost 40 years for the people of Israel. Nothing like this ever happened again in human history of this nature for this prolonged period of time. So it's the end of something that was considered almost average. They even complained about the manna. Their, their parents did. 
We're not sure what each of these people thought when manna ended, but they got up one day, and all that they ever knew in their whole life was no longer like that. They got up one day, looked outside the tent before they're taking Jericho, and there's no manna. So God took how he, they're like, the manna was like training wheels on your bike. The manna was there every day, no matter what. You were nice to your wife, you were mean to your wife. You respected your parents, you disrespected your parents. That manna, like training wheels, was still there every day, whether you were walking by faith and obedience or not. It was still there. But then you woke up one day, and the manna's gone. Training wheels are gone. You got to ride your bike. You got to go forward by faith. There's no training wheels now. This is real life experience. You got to, your next meal is in those hills. So you better take Jericho. Because if you want to partake of the land of milk and honey and the vineyards and the figs and the dates and the, the grapes and all that, you, the only way to go, the next thing, is forward. There's no more manna. It's not there. Don't look tomorrow. It's not going to be there. It's never coming back. Which is a reminder of what Paul the Apostle said. For getting those things are behind, we press on to what lies ahead, to the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Onward, forward, upward. And let's be honest. There are always times in our life we'd like to go back to the manna we knew and be more grateful for the manna, to have another chance with manna, to start over with manna, to go back in life, to do the photo album over again. Let's, let's do this photo album again where we really understand the value of manna and appreciate manna, what it was like with manna. Isn't that the way it is so often? The manna's gone and you realize it was what it was and then you can't go back, which is a lot like life, and I've been thinking about this quite a bit. When you watch people wreck their life and waste their life, the older you get, you realize what a tragedy it is because no one's coming back and no one gets a second chance to go back to the manna. The blessings you had when you were a youth, you had them. The blessings you have as a young adult, you have them. The blessings you have in your 40s, you have them. The blessings you have in your 50s and the 60s. I tell people who are almost, well, well, people who are almost 40, like Sam, or people who are almost 50, like Scott Cunningham, I'm like, hey, you think 40 is old when you're 30. 40 is really young when you're 50. And 50 doesn't, 50 sounds so monumental when you turn 50, but wait till you're 60. You can't help 60. 60 is 60. That's just, like, 60 is a whole new, there's no coming back from 60. It's just a whole new frontier. And you're never coming back from it. 50 sounds really young when you're 60. You can't go back to the manna. You can only go forward in faith with the lessons learned of the manna. And the God who provided manna every morning is the God who's going to fight the battles for us to go enter into the land flowing with milk and honey. We can never go back to the manna. But it is the end of things. It's like when you finish college or you finish high school. I always remember when Hannah graduated in 2008 from Calvary Chapel High School. I remember she, she cried that night. And I don't know if my wife remembers this, because we all had the big dinner, especially when the first child graduates high school. It's a really big deal. I went to Macaroni Grill or something like that. And, but she said, Dad, I know I'll never see some of those people again. Like, I know that's the end. And I'm like, well, it's not really that much of the end. Well, how would I know? I never graduated high school. Like, how would I know? <laughs> and, and it really was the end. There are people you never see. Now, I can compare this to weddings because a lot of times the bigger your wedding, if you have a couple hundred people at your wedding, there are people that come to your wedding that are so important in your life up to your wedding day, and then after your wedding day, you may never see them again. 
It's like the manna. There's things that you, you'll never see them again, you'll never be there again. And you have to let it go, and you have to go forward. So let God circumcise our hearts, let God put the blood of our doorpost, and let us go forward and be thankful for the manna we had, but take the steps of faith without the training wheels to get after the land flowing with milk and honey. That's what we have to do. It's always forward, onward, and upward. It's a sad day when you wake up and there's no manna, but it's still a day that the Lord has made. And he's going to provide for us in another way, in different circumstances, in new chapters of faith in the journey with him. And I would just move on from this saying, like, I feel like this is what we're all learning and going through in life right now. We're never going back to the manna of 2017 or 2007 or 1997. That's just never going to, this planet's never going to be like that. We're in a brave new world. And the man is just not there the way it was. But what I do know is in front of us is the land flowing with milk and honey and all the promises of God that are yes and amen. And you just go like, wow, there's, there's no more manna. It's not like that anymore. It's, just, it's never going to be like that. There's just no manna. It's gone. That was yesterday. But Jesus is still on the throne and there's vineyards and olive groves and wells to be dug and unclogged. Caleb, go get what you're going to go get in the Judah territory. Give it to your daughter for a wedding day. You know, like, there's still things to go do. But that's, we got to know when we got to let it go. We can't look back. No longer had the manna. The children of Israel had no longer had manna. But they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. That's what we have to do. We have to go forward and possess what God's put in front of us and not think about or lament what is now behind us. We have to just fulfill whatever's in front of us as long as we have it this day. Then finally, in this chapter, we get the command of the Lord's army. Verse 13, it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And so he said, No, but as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. This is a great conversation. This most likely, I have a reason to believe, is a Christophany or a theophany, an appearance of God in the Old Testament, particularly Jesus in the Old Testament. He's the commander of the Lord's army. Angels do not accept worship, nor are they worshipped. So the command of the Lord's army is worshipped, and he accepts the worship, unlike the angels in Revelation, right? You know, worship God, not, not the angels. This is different than Melchizedek, who could be a type of Christ. A little bit different. Melchizedek back in Genesis. But this is the commander of the Lord's army. That's the title for this person, this entity, this being, who appears to Joshua, the most important man on planet Earth on this day, and Joshua falls on his face, worships him. And the response, look at the latter part of the passage. Joshua says, what does my Lord say to his servant? Okay, this is good. Like, you know, speak, Lord. What would you, you know, what do you say? Like, okay, commander of the Lord's army, who's obviously greater than me. I fall on my face. What do you say to your servant? And he doesn't say like, oh, here's the battle plan. March seven days, blow the trumpet. Probably said that later. But uh, says, uh, take your sandals off. Or you stand as holy. That's kind of a brief conversation, isn't it? 
<laughs> Before we talk about anything else, just know this. God is holy and man is sinful. And we need to be right with the Lord and know that God is holy. And we talked about this quite a bit going through Deuteronomy. This phrase was used by the Lord when he spoke to Moses at the burning bush. So when Moses was commissioned by the Lord to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt toward the promised land at the burning bush, God said to Moses, take off your sandals, it's holy ground. What happens is is the dimension of eternity comes in the realm of time. It's another dimension, and it it oversees time, space, and matter. The universe being multidimensional, at least four dimensions, because eternity is outside of us. And when it's like when Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego are in the fire with the Son of Man, Jesus, and they're not burning, they don't smell like fire. That means the supreme dimension that supersedes this one comes over it and takes supremacy over it. Probably something like this one. Peter walked on water. It doesn't have to be that way, but we, we know when Elijah and Moses appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, they're coming from another dimension, The millennials have grown up, and we have grown up with these superhero movies where you come through portals and things like that, like Thor lands out of a portal from another universe or whatever, something like that. And here, that which was just regular ground on this side of the Jordan River, it had been there from the dawn of creation, just earth, it's dust, it's dirt. Suddenly with the command of the Lord's army there, Jesus, it's now holy ground. Because eternity's come. And like I say, the throne room of God is the final authority over all things. While we don't look to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. But the things are temporary. But things are eternal or eternal. And so the eternal has come. And so before Joshua's going to lead God's people in real combat, real war, He has this encounter with the Lord himself to understand, to fear God, not men. That when you're standing on holy ground, you don't need to fear the walls of men in Jericho and their obstacles. You don't look at the obstacles, but you are standing on holy ground. Everything gets perspective. Holy ground gives perspective to anything that you would fear of men and time, space, and matter. Holy ground is the rainbow over God's throne with the four living creatures. It gives proper perspective on everything else. What people might say or what they might comment or what they think. When you're on holy ground, it doesn't matter. It's like once you know you have a terminal illness, it doesn't matter. All the wealth in the world doesn't matter. What the neighbors think doesn't matter. Who's the president doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is you're on holy ground and you're headed for eternity. It doesn't matter. Holy ground came. And the more we choose to stand on holy ground, the better for us. It's better for us in our worldview. The fear of man is a snare, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Joshua needs to fear the Lord. You don't ever see him afraid of men in the book of Joshua. You don't ever see Joshua afraid of men. He gets deceived by men, the Gibeonites. But he's, I mean, he's, he's rocked in the, after the battle of, um, you know, after everything happened with Achan. He gets rocked by that, but he didn't fear men. You stand on holy ground, you get the heavenly perspective, four living creatures, the heavenly host, everything else is secondary. 
They've been circumcised. They've kept the Passover. There's no more manna. The only way forward is forward. And now the command of the Lord's army come. It's not about Joshua's ability. It's about his calling and commissioning from the command of the Lord's army. Everything's good. It's all about perspective, and it's the right perspective, and it's the one we need to have with everything going on in our lives. I told you one of the most challenging phone calls or conversations I've ever had was it was very gut-wrenching for me when I was still the coach of the U.S. Olympic surf team, and these accusations had come against me, and I didn't know what the accusations were, and I didn't know who gave the accusations. This, of course, was very upsetting because even the Romans let you face your accusers. It was very unsettling for me to hear all these rumors about accusations against me, and I don't have a chance to know what the accusations are or who's making those accusations. That's very unfair, isn't it? That's not very American. It's not very Team USA, actually. It's pretty unfair. And I was going to have a phone call with the absolute director of the U.S. Olympic Committee to give a defense against accusations. I don't know what they are from people who I don't even know who made them right before the World Championships in Nineton Beach. As it was, it wrecked my son's graduation at GCU a few days before. I just could not get past all this. It's sick in my stomach. I had a, t- had a team meet at Huntington Pier with the team for the World Championships later that afternoon with all these people looking at me like, what have I done wrong? I don't even know what I've been accused of or who's accused me. But I was smart enough to take that phone call right where my wife is sitting I said, I'm going to turn this road game into a home game. I'm going to sit right where I worship Jesus with my wife, right where I tithe, right where I pray, and right where I receive from the Lord and minister. And I'm going to sit right there, and then I'm going to call Mr. Big Shot in the big office in Colorado Springs and hear what he has to say. I put myself on holy ground before I put myself on Olympic ground. And by the way, Olympic ground looks pretty dismal compared to the throne room. And not the rainbow of men, but the rainbow over the Father's throne. And I got the right perspective. A short phone call. I mean, I just, I just looked right here. Uh, yeah, now, now what's, what's up now? 15-minute phone call. Hung up, and I went and coached the team. We got silver. And two months later, I quit. I retired from coaching after 22 years. But I put myself on holy ground. Before you have to face the doctor to find out if you have cancer, before you have to face your last day, before you have to face being fired or let go or falsely accused or that family drama when the trust and the will is read, that's as naughty as it gets. Before you have to face that, stand on holy ground. Stand on holy ground and at the command of the Lord's army, you say, what, 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 what? And you like, just take your shoes off. Put yourself on holy ground. When the greatest fear in life comes your way, put yourself on holy ground. Anyways, but consciously put yourself on holy ground. Make your wedding day holy ground. Make burying your mother in the parish holy ground ground. Make the graveside cemetery holy service, holy ground. Make it all holy ground. Make your marriage, oh, in fact, even Hebrew says, make your bed in your marriage holy ground. Marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled, holy ground. 
The more we walk around in holy ground, the better it's going to be for every aspect of our life, but especially those things that you're afraid of. When you take a stand and you're on the hill that you're willing to die on, make it holy ground. It'll be easier to die. Chapter 6. Now Jericho was securely shut up because the children of Israel, none went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And the the seven priests shall bear the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. So that's the battle plan. The Lord spoke to Joshua and gave him this battle plan. This is the battle plan. Six days, once, seventh day, seven times, silence, then blow the trumpet and shout. So he's got the battle plan. The Lord knows what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. Verse 6. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came up after the ark, and while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth, until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. So, of course, there's a time to be silent, and then there's a time to speak. Verse 11. So he had said, So he had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around at once. Then they came into the city and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then the seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went out continuing and blew with the trumpets, and the armed men went before them. But the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, and so they did six days. But it came to pass on the seventh day when they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priest blew the trumpet that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now, verse 17 is like a parenthetical uh, thought to all this, or it's in the text, but it gives us more background. Now, the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things lest you become accursed when you take on the accursed things and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkey, with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all she had as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all of her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, 
her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua charged him at the time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds the city of Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. So the Lord is with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. So this is that first battle. They had others. And what I alluded to earlier was the battle of Ai, where there was an accursed thing in the camp. We'll see this next week. Achan brought it in, and they were defeated. Joshua was disheartened, but then the Lord told him the problem is there's sin in the camp, and then they went back out and had victory. So this, of course, is that famous story, the Battle of Jericho, this great walled city. For us, it's like a, it's like a story in the old cartoons from the 80s, like Superbook or Derek Margo and Moki with Hanna-Barbera. It's, just, it's, just, it's, like, it's, a, it's always in your children's Bibles, and it's a, it's, sometimes it's hard to kind of really picture the magnitude of it. But war is serious, and combat is serious. And Pickett's charge at <laughs> Gettysburg is serious. War, you know, the landing of Normandy is serious. Th- like, war is serious. People killing people is serious. In a military campaign, it's, it's, it's serious. Some of you have been in combat, I think, in this room. My, my dad was in combat in two different wars. It's very serious. In my dad's military display, there's a bullet they took out of his back when he shot in a helicopter right next to his dog tags from Vietnam with his purple heart and his bronze star and all this. War is serious. It's serious and it's scary. You don't know how you're going to respond to war. You don't know what you're going to do when people start killing each other. You think the people of Jericho just rolled over and didn't fight back? Those walls came down and they fought. The desperate people fight. The Germans thought they'd roll the Belgians in World War I when they rolled in. They thought there'd be no resistance, and the Belgians fought them. Fought them tooth and nail for every piece of land. Changed the whole outcome of World War I because of the Belgian people and the Belgian army. War is serious. And it's brutal. But this war is different than most wars, and this battle is different than most battles. Because sometimes, like for example, Gettysburg, the Union's up on the hill, and Pickett and his boys are down here at the bottom of the hill, 15,000 Virginians. They're both reading the Bible the night before. They're both believing God's on their side. And Pickett's men come against the Union here, and Chamberlain, the 20th Maine's on the left flank. They're a little round top the day before. And it plays out, and like Abraham Lincoln said at the Gettysburg Address about six months later, Woes must come, but woe to who they come. And it's often said in the Civil War, both camps prayed to the same God and then went at each other. You could never really know, in some cases, how it all played out. We weren't there. We don't know all the circumstances, in any war for that matter. But in this battle, we know. We know that this battle, God declared doom on those in Jericho. We know that Israel, in a very unusual set of circumstances, almost like the manna, but in a different way, is the instrument of God's wrath on an unbelieving people who are completely depraved. Now, we would never be in that place. I think we understand that. That's never going to be the role of the church. It's not our, we don't, we don't know. We just don't know. Like, we're never, there's nothing in the New Testament whatsoever that would cause us to believe that we have some high moral ground to be the wrath of God on a people group. That just doesn't exist in the New Testament. But it did exist in this one. And just because it's that way, and may be hard to understand in 2021, doesn't negate its reality, its truth, or the perfection of God's justice and judgment in it. 
For the wrath of God has been revealed against all men, Romans 1 tells us, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness and in their ungodliness. And that's what these people did. It would never be our place with our finite minds to write off any people group, but it's God's place anytime he wants to. Let God be true and every man a liar. So that's difficult. But God knows. Total execution. Because everything in this city is accursed. This is sometimes harder to read than like the flood. When you read the flood, it's like, oh, it's just the flood. No, it's all humanity in the flood and every living creature. The flood is a gnarly judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah is a gnarly judgment. Jericho is a gnarly judgment. There's no way around it. But it's all accursed. And it's a reminder to us that God will judge sin. God will judge wicked men and wicked women who suppress the truth in unrighteousness and ungodliness in our timeline, even as those that came before us will come after us. He will judge sin. Christ on the cross is God judging sin. That's his wrath. And we're either delivered from that or we're facing that. There are no other alternatives. So this reminds us to stand on holy ground and stay on holy ground and not be moved by the pressures of men and the way that seems right, but the end thereby is death. And certainly do not touch the accursed thing. He said, back by verse 17, verse 18, you shall by all means abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take up the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel accursed. Now, We're not in Jericho, and we're not grabbing things in Jericho that bring a curse on us, our household, and our family, and the people we love. But make no mistake, there are cursed things that will curse our heart, our mind, our soul, and the people we love. There are. And as I get older, I often ask myself, is this going to transcend dimensions favorably or disfavorably? Am I watching going to have a positive influence on my character and my thinking, or is it going to have a negative influence on my character and my thinking. Because there's going to be a negative influence on my character and my thinking, it is a cursed thing, and it's not helping me for eternity. But if it's a positive influence on my thinking and my character, then it's a blessed thing, and it is helping me for eternity and preparing me for eternity. I mean, everything's tested by fire. Accursed things don't make it. Even when you're saved by grace, I mean, whatever's accursed, it it doesn't make it. Only the good things make it. So we're reminded yet again to stay away from the accursed things. Even if they're popular, even if they're forced on us. Because we're warned in Romans that not only to do the evil things, but to approve and to approve and sustain or substantiate those evil things. Stay away from the accursed things. In Fox's Book of Martyr, there's a famous story of the one martyr, I believe it was Hugh Latimer, where he was going to be executed the next day in the public square. And his friends came and said, Look, life is sweet and death is bitter, so you should just renounce this and live and not face death tomorrow. And he goes, yeah, it's true. Life is sweet and death is bitter. But the life to come is more sweet and the death to come is more bitter. I will recant nothing but trust in my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they marched him through the streets and burned him at the stake in front of the public and everybody. His end was a public humiliation being burned alive. But he understood that life to come is more sweet and the death to come more bitter. We stay away from the cursed thing. And we'll see you next week. It's the whole, pretty much half the storyline of the text next week is the effect of the cursed thing on those who touch it, take it, and bring it in their home.
Now, Rahab, of course, was spared. We spent a lot of time on Rahab a couple weeks ago. God bless Rahab. She's commended for her faith in the book of Hebrews and the book of James. Amazing, saving grace. What I find very interesting about Rahab the harlot, even though her life would have been a stumbling block and maybe a shame for her family, her conviction of faith was so powerful that it influenced her parents and her siblings and extended relatives. That is amazing. And that's what saving grace does. When you're radically saved, you're radically saved. Like, and she had the credibility of her testimony. See, her work of faith confirms her faith. That's what the book of James tells us. When she hid the spies, that was the confirmation of her faith. And something in that act of obedience of faith gave her credibility in sharing her faith with her parents and her family, and they believed her. She wasn't just my sister, the harlot. She's like, no, she risked her lives, her life to save these men. And what she says is true. And they came in, and her faith imputed an influence in her family, saved her family, which is a beautiful story. And then finally, there's the warning about whoever raises up the city of Jericho will be cursed with the death of their firstborn son. This did, in fact, happen in the book of Kings. And wouldn't you know who was the king at that time when it happened? Ahab. Bad kings, bad things happen. Good kings, good things happen. Wouldn't you know that some knucklehead tried to rebuild Jericho at the same time Ahab and Jezebel were reigning? Gosh, don't let evil people make us be evil. In Jesus' name, amen? Make good decisions no matter who's on the throne.